We got into Romans 12 last week, first two verses, and now we're off and running through the summer with what our response to God looks like as people he's taken to be his own. In this passage, Stephanie just read us what's here, as you're looking at Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, what's here levels us and lifts us at the same time in a way that really only Scripture can. We're told... Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. That's leveling. Look at the passage. You get twice this phrase, the grace given. The grace given to me, verse 3, and verse 6, the grace given to us. The grace given us by God forms our self-perception in such a way that conceit no longer works for us. We can try to make it work, but we know it doesn't work. But the reason here in this context that we refuse to think ourselves a cut above others is so that we don't prevent ourselves by so doing from becoming self-giving. That's the point of these uh, spiritual gifts as we'll get into this. When we're told in Scripture, now we're embarking in a part of Romans where we're told, don't do this, do this. Do that, not the other. We've got a lot of these uh, one-liner imperatives. Next couple of weeks, we'll be in all these one-liners. Do this, don't do that. When you're told not to do something in Scripture, it, it's, it's not simply a negation. But it is so that something else can, can develop in its place. The only real hero of this story is Jesus. I've said that to you many times. Some of you remember Donald Miller's uh, book, uh, Blue Like Jazz, came out, gosh, 12, 13, 15 years ago, seems like now, in which he wrote, the biggest lie I've ever contended with is this, life is a story about me. How do we contend with that lie? Answer is the grace given us by God. Again, this phrase is twice in our passage, once in verse 3, Paul in reference to himself, once in verse 6, in reference to all of us, the grace given us. This passage levels us. Don't conceit yourself out of giving your gifts to God's people. So we're leveled, not brought low, leveled, but we're also lifted. We're told, verses uh, 3 through 8 here, we have these grace gifts from God. These spiritual gifts as we think of them, that, that is resources, by God, resourced him for self-giving. And this, I remember a line, uh, it's from Robbie Zacharias. I don't remember what book it comes from. Maybe it was some of his teaching I heard years ago. But he said it this way. He said, you know, only in Scripture do we find God humbling all of us without humiliating any of us. And God edifying, to edify is to build up, to lift God edifying all of us without exalting any of us. That's beautifully put. Only in Scripture do we find God humbling uh, all of us without humiliating any of us. And we find God at the same time lifting us, edifying us, without exalting us. Here is one such passage where that is true. Romans 12 Verses 3 through 8. Paul says, looking at the passage again, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, notice the grace given to me. Let's think about grace here for a moment. Grace covers our sins. We're used to thinking of grace 
in that respect as that which covers our sins, but grace also motivates our self-giving. You want just half a gospel. Grace covers our sins. That's half the gospel. It also motivates our self-giving. The fundamental flaw in human nature is overestimation of ourselves. So grace is not given to make us feel better about ourselves, though it may have that as a byproduct. That is, uh, we feel better about ourselves before God, sure. But grace is not given to us to make us feel better about ourselves. It's not a self-esteem trip. It is a, a progressive experience of coming to esteem Christ for all that he is, who he is. And then as we esteem Jesus, we can't help but rebuild our self-perception, how we view ourselves around his way, his truth, his life. His grace to us is never just for us. Life is not a story about me. It's a story about Christ. Christ who dwells in us, you and I, by faith through grace. Christ who calls us to glorify him with one another, through one another even. And he resources us for this. This is our passage. It's what our passage is about. Remember last week in verses 1 and 2? Looking back up at verses 1 and 2, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. And then in verse 3, he says, uh, you know, don't be conceited. Some translations don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. One of the largest conformity patterns in the world is me first. Me first-ism, if you will. We all know this. We see it. We swim in it all the time. Many buy into the idea even a lot of Christians buy into the idea that we must understand ourselves first and foremost. That we uh, prioritize ourselves first, that we look long within and often. We have to figure out how we feel. How do I feel about this or that? And then I'll set everything around me accordingly. People talk about my truth, what my truth is all the time, and they mean it. Verse 3 is counter to this pattern, this me-first pattern, just to take that as one of the, the biggest patterns that's out there. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book on preaching. It's called Preaching. <laughs> By the way, did you know Keller was a C-minus preaching student in seminary? His book on preaching, he writes about how modern people might come to the Bible looking to build up their self-esteem feel better about themselves. And the reason they do this is because they're so awash in this. People think the great journey is within, and so they might take a look at Christianity to glean whatever good things Christian faith might offer them for, for self-discovery. They wonder if Christian faith has anything to offer them in the grand project of, of making their best self. And Christian faith does have something to offer in this vein, namely that as creatures made in the image and likeness of God will never be our best selves in any holistic sense, will never be our best selves apart from consecration to our maker, submission to him. But Keller, again, he, he's got this point in his book in preaching where he says to preachers, you know, who you're preaching to is often people who might be interested, seeming, seemingly interested in the gospel, might in fact be people who are looking to the Bible to, to uh, 
for something out of their self-esteem is, is, is needing to, to feel better about themselves. And yet, Keller writes his words now, and yet in the biblical passages on sin and repentance, we discover that the more basic human problem is too high a view of ourselves. We are blind to the depths of our own self-centeredness and overconfident that we have the wisdom to manage our own lives. Close quote. Close quote. Shakespeare would be surprised that we've turned his Hamlet character, Polonius, remember him, to thine own self be true? Shakespeare called Polonius a foolish prating knave. And we've turned Polonius into something of a philosophical standard bearer. To thine own self be true. Too often what's on the other side of that is I will determine for myself what is to be true, what is true, what is my truth, true for me, and everyone else is going to have to deal with it. So a lot of people live, even people who come into a church. And that's unbecoming for us. I mean, literally, speaking to the church, that's literally unbecoming for those who are becoming in Christ, those who have become graced as we have been by God and Jesus. And this is why Paul says, looking at verse 3 again, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Curious phrasing. What does he mean by that? What is the measure of faith that God has assigned? Well, take your index finger and your thumb and pinch Romans chapters 1 through 11. All right? Just like you do a, a, a chaw of tobacco, you know, put it right there between your cheek and gum. I'm reaching back into my Alabama roots here. I know for Mother's Day that was a horrible illustration, um, but some father in here needed that to make it more plain to him. Oh, that's what he means by that. Um, the measure of faith is everything that we've been told thus far in Romans that God has done for us. Paul says God has assigned to us, verse 3, though we are more sinful than we even know ourselves to be, God has assigned us to faith, to be the called out ones, to be the faithful ones, by his grace, his doing. That, that we will not be crushed by his holy wrath in condemnation for our sins, which are many, but saved from that condemnation by justifying grace. Jesus, by grace, removes the death penalty from us. The penalty due us for our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness both and gives us his righteousness and we become trophies of his mercies. Remember verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Well, in verse 3, the mercies of God is called the measure of faith that God has assigned. Salvation is God's initiative. It's God's deal. He brings us in on this. Grace gives us a new and renewing self-perception. I mean, think about this. What does it mean to, to be graced by God? I don't overly hate myself. I don't overly love myself. I don't mean by this some sort of balance. I, I mean that I don't say more or less about myself than Scripture says of me, because Scripture is the voice of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what God says to us here in this passage, just looking at these verses, verses 3 through 8, Romans 12, what God says to us here through the grace he gave Paul 
is to not think too highly of ourselves. Why? Why not? When everything else in, in, our, in our cultural makeup is exactly encouraging that. Why does God interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves? Well, it has to do with because of what he's brought us in on. He doesn't save you in isolation. He saves us individually, but never in isolation. He brings us into a body, a church, the people of God. In this context, the reason God interrupts our preoccupation with ourselves and levels us, doesn't make us low, but levels us, is so that we share with, that we share in the church, the grace resources God has given to you and me generously, lavishly, to build each other up. This is how he wants his church to function. We are talking about the functionality of the church as we get into Romans, uh, the, the back uh, five chapters of Romans. We have seven such resources mentioned here in verses six through eight. You see them there? We call them spiritual gifts. These seven are not exhaustive. There are other gift lists, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. You can find references to gifts elsewhere in the New Testament. When we look at this list, we uh, see that Paul doesn't explain these. <laughs> we instantly want to have an explanation. You know, how do I understand these uh, grace resources? How do I put them to use? Uh, do these ever get baked into your personality uh, over time, etc.? We have questions like that. But the point of the passage, the reason Paul doesn't explain these is that the point of the passage is how the grace of God that forms our self-perception also motivates our self-giving. And here are seven expressions. Paul will get much more specific as we go on about how to love and how to do this and how not to do that, etc. But looking at these seven in verses 6 through 8, they don't come with instructions other than use them. <laughs> you see that? If you got this one, you got that one. The other one's not mentioned here, but elsewhere. If you've been resourced with a gift, and everybody has, use it, he says. Paul doesn't explain it. I won't either. That's another sermon. In fact, that's our shape class. We have a class called Shape. It's on spiritual gifts. If your class has never had Andrew Beach and Cricket Keith come in and present this uh, excellent uh, teaching on spiritual gifts, and you're looking for uh, a class, uh, contact Andrew and Cricket. They'll be happy to come teach you the shape. They get into a lot of the details about gifts and how they work and, and, and fit and what, what they mean. In the time we have left, I want us to consider the point. And the point is how grace gifts in practice, in use, draw us out of ourselves. Because what does verse 3 tell us? Don't get so caught up in yourself that you miss the body around you. That's the passage. We're being told that grace gifts then, in context, in practice, grace gifts draw us out of ourselves into others. That's the overall point here, the functionality of the church. Not how, but why. Every one of us in this room has room to grow. Glorification is the last stop in your salvation. And that hasn't happened for you yet because you're still living and breathing and here. Glorification happens for those in Christ the moment you die. Or the Lord's return for us, whichever comes first. And glorification is something we look forward to because it's no more growth needed then. 
when we're glorified, we will become, uh, instead of men and women of dust, uh, men and women of the new heavens and the new earth. Finally, incorruptible. Finally, like our Lord is. But in the meantime, until that day, there's not one of us here Whoever gets to a place in our spiritual development, no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, none of us here ever get to a place in our spiritual development where we do not need others who've been resourced by God in, just look at the list here, verses 6 through 8, we have prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, mercy, just staying with the seven that we have here. And we won't even cover all of these. I'm not going to touch on all of them. How do these graces, here's the concern of the passage, how do these graces draw us out of ourselves? If the, if the imperative of the passage is don't look too highly on yourself, and then here's all these grace resources you made, then how do these things in practice, how do they draw us out of ourselves into others? Because each one does. Let's take the first one, for instance, prophecy. See it there in verse 6? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. What is prophecy? Prophecy in the church is a spontaneous word from God that the congregation then tests against Scripture. It's not uh, adding to Scripture. It's not on the level of Scripture. But it is direction from God through one he's resourced to give it. Perhaps it's preparatory for something. Perhaps it's a warning, perhaps it's encouragement, perhaps it's uh, confirmation or consolation, a word in season, if you will. That Paul says here, those given this gift should do it, look at verse 6, in proportion to our faith means what? In keeping with what God has revealed. It goes right hand in hand with verse 3. Verse 3, the measure of faith that God has assigned. Verse 6, in proportion to our faith, this gift of prophecy is practiced by those who have it, which means the gift is ordered by, kept by, parametered by Scripture. It's not on the level of Scripture. It's not adding to Scripture. Now, honesty compels me that because of our concern with the way that prophecy gets used in some traditions and abused, we've, a lot of us, overreacted to the measure of disorder that we've seen in this particular gift, or we think that a closed canon means it's no longer needful, but you can't argue that from Scripture. You can argue it onto Scripture, but you can't argue it from Scripture. And by the way, anything good from God can be abused. We don't say leadership or teaching is no longer needed. Although both of those gifts, I would argue, get abused a whole lot more than, than some of the, uh, the gifts that we're unsure about in our context. It's just, we've got to understand. I, I understand that I preach to a congregation uh, and am one among you that we want to be as faithful to the Scriptures as we can. But you've got to understand, every one of us, in thinking we're being faithful to Scripture, we will nevertheless impose our selectivity in places. We all do it. Certainly we do in the gifts passages. We need to be honest about that. But each grace gift that we have here in Romans 12, in practice, each one is for drawing us out of ourselves into others by use of what God has entrusted to us for others' benefit. It is God using you and me for each other's 
benefit. Let's, let's underscore benefit here. Why is it important to emphasize that this is for one another's benefit? How many Christians today seek to find their gifts in order to understand themselves better? It's just an appendix to this book we're writing on ourselves. Don't we do that? It's our default. I want to know what my spiritual gifts is because, you know, I did the, this personality profile and I did this. And I want to, it's just always, we're just always trying to find out more about ourselves. Is there something wrong with self-understanding? Not at all. It's, it's good to know how we're wired. You can personality test yourself to death if you want to. I don't care. Tell me what your number is or what your profile is. You got these letters. You got this number. All right, good for you. Uh, I, I'm all over the place with those things. I get one tells me I'm this and the other one tells me I'm that. And it's like, well, <laughs> maybe I'm just a split personality that I think I am half the time. But you and I know that if all self-understanding does is just takes us further into ourselves, we're going to miss a lot of Jesus. Because Jesus, he's known through his word. Hear me say that. Yes, absolutely. We're less quick to affirm, particularly in our circles, how he is known through his people. And you immerse in his people with your gifts. And we live in a context of radical individuality. It really is every man, every woman for himself, herself. If I want to redefine myself at the core of my being, there are plenty of people out there ready to receive me doing that and to affirm me in that. That's what we live in. That's what we're in all of the time. It's, it surrounds us. It's the, it's the air that we breathe. It's hard in our radical individualism, which we participate in, to square with this, that, that Jesus is, is certainly is known in his word. Absolutely. It's the word made flesh. He's also known in and through his people and the use of their gifts. See, we often want to be just Jesus and me. We're comfortable with that, actually. Or uh, just Jesus and those just like me. We're comfortable with that. But it's, it's bigger. The kingdom is always bigger than we want it to be. We've been given gifts, you and I in Christ, to practice self-giving. And as we do that, what happens is we encounter Jesus among his people and we see again and again how much his people need him. Not us, the gifted people, whatever our gifts are, speaking collectively, but him in us is what people need. And this is what we've got. Verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, stop there in, in verse 7. It's kind of obvious, serving. Serving gets us out of ourselves and others. And by the way, as with other gifts, a spiritual gift might be something that we're all exhorted to do in Scripture, like serving. We're all exhorted to serve one another in Scripture. In fact, we're all exhorted to teach one another. Do you know where we teach one another? In singing. 
psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. When you sing, when you open your mouth to sing, you're participating in the collective teaching that the Scripture says, Colossians 3, that we're all to do with one another. Because when you sing, you affirm the truth of that. God doesn't ask you whether you like the tune or not. He says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Colossians 3, which is a a comprehensive, wide variety of, of musical style. He says, when you sing, you teach and exhort. Teaching and exhortation are two of the things here. We all do this. But some of us get gifted in this particular avenue uh, like service. We're all exhorted to serve one another. Verse 7, if in service, in our serving. If service, in our serving. But some of us are really gifted at this. All of us do it. But some of us... Uh, that kind of hands-on, doing what must be done, serving, it, it's, it's, your, it's your natural swing. Some of you, to use the golf analogy, <laughs> and I have to laugh when I use a golf analogy because my natural swing in golf always sends the ball way left or way right of the fairway. I even had a golf pro once offer to work with me years ago. This was in Murfreesboro when I was church planning in Murfreesboro, and this guy, uh, I was interested in golf back then. I'm not anymore. Uh, he, he met me on a driving range and reassured me before we got going. He said, you know, there is no slice, there is no shank that uh, I cannot work out of a teachable student. And then he saw me hit the ball a few times. And all he said was, well, I'll be. <laughs> he said, you sure hit it far for somebody who can't hit it straight. And I said, that's it. Look, it goes way out there. It's, I've got the height. I've got the strength. Boom, pow, way over there. I'm fouring people left and right, you know. He thought I was a hopeless case. My natural swing is not service, to torture the metaphor now. The hands-on, doing-what-must-be-done kinds of doings. I have to make myself volunteer. A list goes up, we're going to go down here and we're going to do this. And I go, oh no, I don't want to do that. It feels like a golf swing for me. Some of you, you love that. You live for that. You're gifted in that. Some of you, you're you're like my brother-in-law, who was a college national champion in golf. He has a beautiful natural swing. Just hits the ball. Perfect. Could have been a pro. And, and you have that because in redeeming you, God has resourced you to grace the body of Christ that way. There may be other ways also that you have, but these graces, verses 6 through 8, as your eye just takes them all in at once, there's just some of the ways, some of the ways God equips us to get us out of ourselves and into others. For me, it's teaching and leading. Both are here. You've got teaching in verse 7. You've got leading in verse 8. This is what I know best of spiritual gifts because they're mine. And let me say that having a gift doesn't mean you know everything there is to know about it from the get-go. I'm still learning how to teach. I'm still learning how to lead. I've heard people who know they have the gift of service confess it took them years to realize not everybody had to serve just like they were to be faithful to God. I've known people who, who have admitted they had, the, they had a, a servant heart but a critical spirit. 
And it took them years to recognize that, that and, and to finally free everybody around them to just receive their service and not, have to, and not have to do exactly what they were doing in order to be faithful to God. Teaching and leading happened to be how I uh, have experienced God resourcing me to get me out of myself and into others. And you go, well, you're talking about getting your, out of yourself and into others, but teaching and leading is, I mean, that's, that's front of house gifting. That's, uh, that's marquee. That's spotlight gifts. Some people, I wish I had those, you know, I wish I could teach, I wish I could lead churches. You get a lot of affirmation and attention with those gifts, you do, yes, sadly. But something I've learned over time putting into practice and staying with what I've been given to do is that you don't need me to use my gifts. I need you if I'm going to use my gifts. I had that exactly backwards when I first started out. The people of God existed as my audience, which sounds so conceited now because it was. But what I've learned through the years, and I'm a slow learner, is that God doesn't need me, but he can use me. And that's made a huge difference in, in self-understanding. That keeps the conceit away. I remember reading years ago what C.S. Lewis wrote about... Um, when he was first drawn to the church, when he became uh, converted to Christ out of atheism, he went to a Church of England, we call it Anglican now, uh, worship service, and he said it was fourth-rate hymns set to fifth-rate music. He couldn't stand it. He said, I can't believe these people come. And then he, and then he looked over and he saw uh, an old woman who was still wearing her mud boots, the boots she gardened in. And the look on her face as she sung these fourth-rate hymns set to fifth-rate music was, was uh, he could just tell that he was the conceited one. And he said, then you, you look over at something like that and you realize you're not fit to clean those boots. He said, it gets you out of your solitary conceit. I've learned in my case that God's people are not an audience for me. I'm an instrument for your benefit for a time, however long that time is. I've also learned there's a difference between driving people and leading them. Learn that here. What God reinforces to me, just taking the two I know well as an example, teaching and leading, what he reinforces to me over years now, teaching and leading, is, is how much he loves you as people. That's what I've come to understand. i got to stay close to that. If God has given me something to say to you that sustains your interest or encourages you or helps your walk or shows you Jesus, it's not because he wants to make much of me. I realize that now. Leading, I found a lot harder than teaching. Just, again, taking up with these two because I have a lot of familiarity with them. And notice that the leading, down in verse 8, one who leads with zeal. We'll come back to that word zeal in verse 11. In another sermon, but zeal puts urgency to diligence. And so in a context of leadership, the leader is resourced by God to keep watch and to take courage. There are issues that come up leading a church, any organization, but just put, keeping this in a church context, people take sides. There's a, there's a draw. A lot of churches like ours that have, in our case, 84 uh, years under our belt, we have a draw to the status quo. We want to get everything set on just, you know, 
just right. Don't everybody bother this. And, and, and so uh, leaders have to step in and step up to that. That's hard sometimes. It's lonely, even though use of these resources pull us out of ourselves into others. Speaking for myself and leading, I have found God has blended for me the blessings and the burdens so that I don't have so many burdens to ever justify my whining, but I also don't have so many blessings that I romanticize this work or, or clutch it to myself too tightly. There'll come a day when I'm done, not with the church, but with this role in it. And when that day comes, I don't want God to have to pry my fingers loose of this because I've made this uh, about my identity or that because I'm, I'm so well treated here and I can't turn the page to the next chapter. Hopefully that turning of the page from here somewhere else a long time, I got to beat Salto. All right, Salto had 25 years. I've only got 16. I think this year I'll be the second longest tenured pastor in First of Man's history. That's a big deal. Yeah, ooh, great. That's great. That just means I've, you know, y'all haven't figured out in 16 years you could do better. That's what that means. But honestly, I try to occupy my, my seat here lightly. In fact, it's been in using my gifts that God has taught me a dual reality. It's two sides of the same coin. On one side of the coin is I'm not indispensable. And the other side of the coin is I'm not incidental. It's both, and that's good of God to do it that way. That keeps me at it and under it at the same time rather than ever getting over it. I think a lot of guys go wrong in ministry when it just becomes about them and bless their hearts. I got a, I made a t-shirt. I'm ordering a t-shirt from a website called The Bitter Southerner uh, that uh, says, bless your heart. And I'm going to wear that thing around. I think what happens to a lot of guys is that it just becomes about them. And that's just the death knell. And as much as it depends on me, I've really tried to, to not let that happen. God resources us, all of us, sends us, all of us, into places where he doesn't need us. He doesn't need you anywhere. But he can use you. And in using you, what he's going to show you is how much he loves his people. And that's a good thing for you to see. Especially when his people are at their ugliest or when his people are at their most resistant, most reluctant. He shows you Jesus. That's why we get gifts. Every one of these gifts and the other spiritual gift lists, every one of them Jesus had. All of them. He had the whole complement. He had them. He served. He prophesied. He exhorted. He taught. He contributed with, with generosity. He the, who, was, who, who was rich became poor for, for our sakes that, that we might become rich. He led did acts of mercy, look at the other lists, put them up against Jesus, and then you see, you see the profile of who it's supposed to be, what it's supposed to be. That's why we get gifts. Never to say, look at me, but to say, look at him. Look at this God who loves his church so well that we should at all have those who show us mercy. You know, if, if you're connected in the church, if you're part of a Sunday school class here, I can almost guarantee you when you need to be shown mercy, somebody in that class will show you mercy. 
There's a burden bearer for everyone in every church. You have to stay in the church. You have to endeavor to find it. You have to do the relational work of, of building that. But it's available. It's here. And what we see in that is the devotion of the Lord to his people. That we have people who exhort us to take courage and keep going and develop resilience. You know, when sufferings broke out in, in my life, um, I, there was a transition, a shift between the people of God being the people I worked for and the people of God becoming my people. Because what I experienced of the people of God was all of this. Prophecy, teaching, leading, exhortation, all of it. And, it. and at my most needy points, and Lynn can say this too, those gifts have emerged from people, and, and they didn't even know they were doing it. They didn't draw attention to themselves. They just used their gifts. And we've been blessed by that. And when suffering seasons are past and you're kind of back to your equilibrium, it still happens, but you're more keen to it. You're more dialed into it. You note it more. A lot of people out there can say a lot of bad things about the church today, and a lot of it sticks. But the thing that they can never say about us is that we're unloved by a merciful Savior who persists with us. And he gives gifts because that's part of his persistence. The persisting with us in giving us gifts is to show us for life. You have that gift for the whole time that you're left here. And he shows us his love and his care and his grace for us as we use our gifts. He lifts us even as he levels us with incredible grace. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And then we're going to sing. Ken, are we going to sing the song we just sang? He will hold me fast. Oh, that's a good one to sing at the end of this one. Lord, thank you for uh, helping us to, um, to see uh, our own self-perception through your eyes, which is at the same time kind of frightening because you tell us the truth about ourselves. There's no hiding with you. But then it's also lifting because you've been so generous with us. And even if we're here today in the midst of trials and problems and we keep asking you, Lord, you know, how long? Why haven't you? Why won't you? When will you? Even in our case, we've been treated so well. And Lord, we need to come back to your word again and again. And we need to intersect with the gifting of your people again and again because it's... Uh, it's, it's how you keep us close, and we're grateful for that. So thank you for this passage and the other passages to come. Thank you for how you meet us in every passage we're in. And we can open up the worst place in Ezekiel, and we can find you talking to us, and we're thankful for that. So we're grateful, Lord, that you are good to us and that you've given your body gifts. And uh, if our interest is piqued today, Lord, into what our gifts are, that that one will, will start that process of availing themselves of resources to figure it out. But one large way that we discovered is we get into the body and we find uh, what we are and how we have been equipped to contribute. And we thank you that you're doing that always. Thank you for holding us fast. Thank you that we can sing this to you. Thank you for all the ways you carry us in Christ's name. Amen.